Welcome to the Love the Land podcast, brought to you by the Texas Grazing Land Coalition, where good stewardship of Texas rangeland is promoted through partnerships, technical assistance, training, and education. I am your host, Lee Burton, and I am honored to bring to you some of the most innovative thought leaders surrounding the efforts to conserve our Texas rangeland. If you are someone looking to improve the land in your care, or if you're just curious about the environmental impact of the vast amount of grazing land and its inhabitants in our state, then I think you'll enjoy hearing from our guests. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to leave a review. We'd love the chance to engage with you. We're here at the Beef Cattle Short Course in College Station, Texas, and I'm uh, joined today by my new friend, Miss Julie Maddox. And uh, Miss Maddox has got a, a deep love for our native prairie land, and uh, I think she's got a really interesting story coming from her past career, um, her past um, work as a, as a surveyor going all across the country, surveying different ecosystems for for large corporate companies, and uh, and and through that, she's developed a love uh, for the prairie, and, um, and and even a love for cows. Somebody that was uh, that might have been a little bit um, anti-grazing grazing animal for a while, but uh, anyway. So she's just a just a neat story, and I think you guys will really appreciate hearing uh, her perspective as she brings it to us. So, Miss Maddox, thank you so much for joining me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be here today, and I love sharing my story. Um, I call it Dairy to Prairie, and let me give you a little background about myself. I was a surveyor. I guess I'm still a surveyor, but I was a surveyor for over, oh, about 35 years in the oil and gas industry. I got to go all over the United States working all these different ecosystems from Canada, California, all the way back east. And I became, well, let me, let me back up. I got to work, especially on state and federal lands, with archaeologists, paleontologists, biologists, and botanists. And it was working with those botanists in the short and the mixed grass prairies of the West that I became totally enamored with the prairie and all of its ecosystems. It's one of the most diverse ecosystems on the planet next to the Amazon rainforest. Anyway, while working in those... Um, that ecosystem, again, I became enamored with what it had to offer. And it offers something to me that uh, no, none of the other ecosystems have, and that is a sound. Mm. It is the sound of all those insects buzzing around. It's the birds singing. It's the animals that live there. It's a very noisy place, especially in the summertime and in the wintertime. Uh, anyway, kind of fast forward here. I moved to Texas in 1996, and my husband wanted to live near Lake Fork because uh -huh. he wanted to go fishing. Bass fishing. That's <laughs> right. That's right. So we bought a little place on one acre, and it was surrounded by this beautiful little pasture. It did have uh, introduced grasses in there, uh, but it also had some remnants of uh, maybe some prairie grasses in there. And all kinds of animals were there. We saw roadrunners. There was... Uh, you know, coyotes, bobcats, all kinds of wildlife was there. But about three years after I moved there, the owner of that nice little 70-acre pasture decided to reopen a dairy that I thought had been permanently closed, and it surrounded me on three sides. 
Well, when one is gone for very long periods of time at work, sometimes I'd be gone for six months, maybe nine months. Mm-hmm. Well, you notice dramatic changes. Mm. He was milking about um, over 150 cows on that 70 acres, mm. and my fence was the milk lane. Mm. So, when one comes back, there are those dramatic changes. First thing we notice, wildlife disappeared. Uh. Didn't see any more snakes. I like snakes. The insects, the insect population changed. It became flies uh-huh. yeah. that were hanging out at my place. In fact, I went so far, the flies became so bad, I went so far as to spray my property for flies. Not only did I do anything not to kill the flies, I probably killed every beneficial insect that sure. was left on the property. Yeah. Well, I got a dilemma here. What am I going to do? Well, I can continue to live there, but I didn't even enjoy coming home. My little Shangri-La was gone, Mm. you know. Uh, I couldn't even sit outside. Mm. So I could continue to put up with it, like I said, or I could sell the place. It wasn't worth much anymore (laughs) being surrounded by a dairy on three sides with cows 30 feet from my bedroom door. My house had the shade trees on my side, which provided shade for the cows on the other side. And guess where they stood? They're your your neighbors. They were my neighbors. Close neighbors. They were my neighbors. So I had a, the third option. Maybe I could buy out the dairy. And it took me 10 years of negotiating with that guy. And I bought out that dairy, and all those cows left. And I proclaimed to the world that I never, ever want to see a cow on my property again. Cows were the enemy. They cows were, were my bad. enemy, yeah. for sure. So, for I'm still working. I still have my business. I'm out surveying. The place is now exclusively Bermuda. Mm-hmm. I continue to have it cut and bailed, sold to hay. Sure. Keep my 1D1 yeah. exemption. But one day, home, I think I was at hot summer day, 2014. The hay had been cut and bailed. I took a walk out there in the back. At, at that time, I um, had only bought 25 acres, and later on, a few years later, I bought the remaining uh, dairy. You just had dry cows around me. But I went for a walk back there, and I leaned up against one of those big bales of hay, and I closed my eyes, and I listened. Hmm. Where's my symphony? Yeah. Where's my orchestra of it's insects? Quiet. I have a dead zone. I have a monotypic stand of Bermuda grass that provides habitat for my army worms, which I also sprayed for. Yeah, sure. And it's probably a really great hayfield. It was a wonderful hayfield. Extremely fertile ground. Very fertile. In fact, full of nitrogen. Full of nitrogen. The lagoons that I got rid of, we put them on that pasture. Mm. Oh, it it was great. Yeah. Yeah, great hay. Sure. But I don't have any wildlife. Uh-huh. So it was that, that time I had been researching tall grass prairie restoration. And I contacted Texas Parks and Wildlife and asked for technical guidance. Mm-hmm. Their biologist came out and said, I think we can get you into the program. So in 2015, I signed into the Pastures for Upland Birds program. And that was the beginning of the Tall Grass Prairie Restoration. They are a great agency, great program. They provide the herbicide. They provide the seed. They provide the no-till drill and 10 years of technical guidance to help you along with your uh, restoration. 
So in 2015, we got the herbicide and sprayed that, and my neighbors thought I was absolutely nuts. I'm in dairy country, uh-huh. and I'm killing Bermuda You're grass. You're killing Bermuda grass. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 They <laughs> thought I was crazy. But in, uh, the, the property set idle hmm. for that uh, summer all the way into January when they delivered the seed and the no-till drill, and we planted that. Okay. What types of seeds were you, were you trying to plant to reestablish? Well, we're planting the big five. Okay. That would be your switchgrass, um, big blue, little blue. Um, we also had a lot of Indian grass in there and Eastern Gamma. Mm. Now, is this a sandy loam soil type, or how I, would you describe it there? I have a sandy loam for about uh, eight inches, and uh, then I hit clay. Okay. So yeah. I can retain a lot of water in some areas. Gotcha. So, you know, here we plant all this stuff, and I have this vision of the only thing that's going to grow is what I planted. Of course, there was other forbs in there. There's partridge pea, Illinois bundle flower, maximilians, and uh, some other things. Mm-hmm. But, of course, uh, in the spring, none of that was coming up. It was mm-hmm. all cool season stuff that was already in the seed bank, and I started to learn about the seed bank and mm-hmm. Uh, everything that's down there. And once you kill that mat of coastal Bermuda, especially in my situation, everything that is dormant down there wants to grow, and it grows with a vengeance. Uh. And Parks and Wildlife now admits we made one small error. We did not do a winter spray and kill back the annual rye, and that became our issue. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. It uh, grew real high, I mean, up chest level on me because I have such a fertile piece of property. And it laid over and created a mat and didn't allow a lot of our warm season bunch mm-hmm. grasses to grow. Mm. So things weren't progressing the way that I thought it should. I had my biologist on speed dial. I'm sure he got really sick of me. And <laughs> they would come out and say, well, maybe we need to do a burn this year. And they came out with the burn specialist, and they said, can't do it. You don't have enough fuel. You got too much rye that's already growing. We can't burn anything. Gotcha. So later on that year, they finally admitted, and that is not part of the program with Parks and Wildlife, is to have cattle. But they said, Julie, we think you need cows. Mm -hmm. And I just shook my head. I said, I I don't know anything about cows. I don't like cows. But I'm very determined. I'm going to create a tall grass prairie and restore this. So I contacted the NRCS. Okay. And also met some mentors in my area that have uh, restored tall grass prairie. Started talking to them. The NRCS, their agent came out, biologist, and threw his hands up. He said, man, I wish my cows could be here. He said, Julie, this is going to be so simple. All you're going to do, you got fences here. You got boundary fences, and you got one interior fence. You're going to get your poly wire, make electric fences. You're going to get 20, 30, 40, maybe 50 head of cows in here. One, two, three acre pastures. Let them eat that rye and move them on to the next pasture. I said, okay, I think I can do that. I'll give it a whirl. So I don't have any cows. Mm-hmm. So I borrowed. Of course. 13 cows. Yeah. They did pretty good, but they couldn't keep up. Gotcha. So I got yeah. borrowed 13 more cows. And I don't know the significance of 13, but that's what it ended up being. It's what then would I, fit on your trailer. Yeah, then <laughs> I bought 13 cows <laughs> from uh, the Abels, which are north of me, and they have 1,000 restored acres okay. with grass genetic cows. So I bought those 13, and boy, did those gals 
do their job. Um, I called my biologist out. They got there about March 1st, and they were there to eat the rye. And I called him out at the end of May, and they were amazed at the difference that those cows made. We started seeing a presence of the big blue stem. Uh, areas that were, I mean, the whole place wasn't bad. We had areas of, you know, we had some eastern gamma coming up in a few areas. It took three years to see it, though. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very slow, the process. But areas that weren't doing very well, we started seeing the presence of some of the forbs and things that we had planted were coming in. Areas that were doing okay were doing fantastically. Um, you know, but it's time for the cows to leave. And I did ask Parks and Wildlife, do you think it would be okay if I go ahead and kept some of these cows? You're starting to like cows again. I'm starting to like cows again. <laughs> because there's things that they can eat here in the summertime. I still have a lot of crabgrass, uh-huh. and they do well on that, I found out. And they said, Julie, absolutely, as long as you continue to rotationally graze, yeah. you can keep cattle. Because at the time, in their contract, they only allowed cattle for 14 days out of a year on the property. But I was able to demonstrate to them that I only had cows on the property in each one of those pastures for 12 days mm-hmm. as I moved them around. You had a rest rest rotation system. I had a rest rotation yep. system yep. going on that. So, I mean, it's it's been just totally amazing. Yep. And now I'm into gra- the grazing ecology now. And what cows eat? At what time of the year do they eat it? And so that's when I've got into my... Um, project now with the NRCS. Okay, so you were telling me a little bit about that project with NRCS and you know, I think you know part of the 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 mission that we have and and why the NRCS is such a great partner with uh Texas GLC is because we do recognize the importance of that grazing animal and the and how they recycle the nutrients of the plants, but your experience, you've even taken it to a, to a different level because you're actually following these cows around and you're watching what they eat and have been very surprised by some of the findings that you've that you've seen. So talk a little bit about that as we, you know, we, we think, well, gosh, a cow would be completely happy on that coastal Bermuda grass that you had. But it was, like you said, it was, it was quiet and void of all other life. And so talk a little bit about now um, what you found where diversity comes into play. Well, let me talk a little bit about diversity before I talk about that project that I'm getting in. That's part of the Parks and Wildlife Plan. It's all about diversity. We're creating habitat. Remember, I'm in the Pastures for Upland Birds program, not the Pastures for Cows program. (laughs) Um, And, you know, you got to kind of walk a fine line to keep your wildlife and your cattle. Mm. I mean, they're they're a tool. They have become my bison is what they are now. Um, But diversity with parks and wildlife, it wasn't only about birds. We're there to restore um, habitat for the amphibians, for the reptiles, for the small mammals, the insects, the pollinators. Uh, You know, I'm there to create a symphony again Mm -hmm. for what's uh, happening on the place. But as I started to become more familiar with the cattle and working with with the NRCS, we did some soil testing to see some of the areas where the pastures were not coming along, what we needed to do there. Maybe we need to do some replanting, maybe put some lime out. We had a lot of compaction in some places. And then I was talking to my grazing specialist, and I said, you know, 
I like watching these calves, uh, what they eat. I go out and look at them in the morning, and then I'm out there in the afternoon again or in the evening, and um, they even make grass sound good that I might like to eat it. <laughs> I said, but you know what? They're not, when I open up a pasture, they're not necessarily eating the grass first. They're going and eating some of this other stuff that's growing out there. And I said, I wonder what the nutrients are in that. Why are my cows so fat compared to my neighbors over there on that monoculture over there? He said, well, why don't we start collecting some of that? We'll send it in for forage analysis and see what we're working with. So we started that last November. Hmm. Okay, so we're in the fall already, right? But, you know, we have a lot of stuff growing in East Texas still. So we collected uh, some partridge pea that the cows are eating, some ragweed, Hmm. western Mm -hmm. ragweed. Um, What else? Uh, Maximilian sunflowers. Uh, Curly dock. You know, curly dock has a protein content of like 22% protein. This is, you know, I've got more protein in my forbs than I do in my grasses. Wow. And the cows seem to know what's good for them. So they're eating that kind of stuff. And that just totally amazed us. And then I said, well... Let's do what they're eating in the spring. So we did another one. We've we've collected giant ragweed, same nutritional content as alfalfa. Uh. They'll strip every single leaf off of those things. Maximally in sunflowers, they'll pick the leaves off of those. One thing that totally amazed us was the prickly lettuce. I think that had like 27% protein and a TDN of 77. Huh. They'll strip every leaf off of those. Now what other types of grasses are they selecting a- selecting against when they're selecting those those forbs would they you say? will eat the bermuda last really yes uh-huh. now in the summertime they love their crabgrass uh-huh. they'll they'll be going for that certain times of the year they love that eastern gamma they're hitting that really yep. hard in fact in some areas i'll only let them in for one day <laughs> because you know I only let them take half. They can't take it down to the ground on on our natives. Yeah. I have to be very careful. Now, this year is a little bit different. I've let them take it down a little bit further. Um, to create I'm, your rest on the rest of the To create my rest. Pastures. And I'm thinking yeah. that I may not be able to come back to some of these pastures even this year uh-huh. if it doesn't rain. Yeah. But it's uh, it's all been such an interesting experiment mm. that's going out there. Um, we've also, um, when we bought the place, we have the old milk shed. My husband fixed all of that up. We have workshops now okay. at my place where we invite the local, um, anybody that's interested in, in prairie restoration and rotational grazing and uh, maybe restoring some of these uh, native grasses and forbs. Mm-hmm. Because I think the cattle, personally, I have found, and I know it's different everywhere, but I think they do so much better. Yeah. On a place like mine that we're trying to create. I think, you know, hearing you talk, I think you're you're speaking to a a picture that so many people want to strive towards, right? Um, and we get uh, but it's scary in it's scary. in a way because you think about all the things that could go wrong and the droughts that are gonna come up, you know, and I've and and most people that are listening to our uh, to our podcast are already um, keen on the grazing animal. And so they may have cows and they don't want to think about, you know, getting rid of some of those cows in order to create some of this. But, you know, what I love and what, what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, there's a place for those cows when handled as a tool in conjunction with 
all of the other life forms on the native prairie. Um, but I think it's uh, there's there's almost a grace and a freedom too to be able to make mistakes in striving Absolutely. for that. It's very forgiving. Very forgiving, as long as you follow certain principles, oh, not practices. Exactly. And yeah. so, what 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 are some of the guiding principles that that you're seeing and trying to trying to implement as you give yourself grace for the give myself for the grace yeah. on that? Yes. Well, some of the guiding principles, of course, with the rotational grazing mm-hmm. is. Not to take it down to the ground, of course. Rest is probably one of the most important part of um, what I'm doing right now with that. Also, another deal that I'm doing is I let my cows do trample planting. I have areas where maybe it's not doing so good. Uh, In the winter, I will, and I don't feed hay. No hay. No hay. I need to bring that up. No hay. <laughs> Except I do have some bales in the barn for emergencies, like we had that cold snap a yep. few years ago. Got to have that or if you got snow on the ground or ice. Sure. Insurance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got to have my little insurance policy there. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. Where was I going with that? Well, you were trample planting. Oh, trample planting. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Areas aren't doing so good. So I do feed some cubes. Okay. Protein supplement um, in the wintertime, maybe starting around December. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I will go and spread their cubes out on the ground and uh, then put some seed out mm-hmm. and then let the cows come in. And that hoof action, Yep. they're planting that seed for me. So if I don't have a no-till drill or a drop seeder or something, the cows are doing it for me. And that's what the bison used to do. Yeah, yeah. So are these, is this, I'm assuming, a cow-calf operation? This is a cow-calf operation, and the girl that never wanted to see another cow is now trying to uh, make the best grass-fed, grass-finished cow. I've even uh, had one steer that I brought in graded out at low prime. Oh, wow. It was the first low, first prime grass-finished cow this particular uh, wow. processor had ever seen we're usually in the um choice mid choice mm-hmm. to high choice oh wow that's that. impressive on yeah. you know for a grass a grass-fed animal to grade that well but you one of the things you mentioned in passing a little bit was you you were able to partner with some of your your local neighbors that had mm-hmm. some grass type genetics so what i mean can you speak to what what type of genetics are, are we talking about there well i have angus uh-huh um some of it is crossed with a little bit of Hereford in there, mm-hmm. and the Abels have, um, north of me with their ranch, have been selecting for grass genetic cows that do very well mm-hmm. on grass. I can't provide you with all the technical stuff on that, but uh, these cows know how to process. Yeah. Yeah, so they so got a big rumen, you know. It, that, there you they're, go. They're, they're, I call them wide loads. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's uh, very efficient, and you know, probably if you're not feeding hay and you're just you know uh, feeding a little bit of supplemental protein, then you know those cows are probably have a, have a little more gross margin for profit built into them as well. Yeah. Uh, without so many inputs, and you know they're. They're kind of like they're teaching us here at this at this school this week is, uh, you know, work with Mother Nature. And, yeah. and that's going to carry you a long way through these droughts. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, so just kind of shifting gears a little bit, uh, I think, it, you know, I think a, a 
beautiful part of your story is just the the community aspect of all the other intelligent minds that you've you've discovered there where you are and you've discovered the grazing land coalition which is uh which is really why we exist to be able to bring i wouldn't say people that have it figured out but i would say people that are curious and kind of have a same passion for seeing positive change happen on the landscape Mm -hmm. and so it's fun to surround ourselves with other people that are just curious individuals and people that love to just sit out there and listen to the prairie and you know i mean some of this gets a little bit of i don't know spiritual or touchy-feely or whatever but at the end of the day i mean you're creating life where there's void of life and that is I mean that that doesn't it doesn't get much more rewarding than that, mm-hmm. and so um, so speak a little bit about that and and kind of what that what you enjoy about that and you've got a um, uh, a a group that's that's coming together soon and and you've got an event planned it's early August right I mean no just, it'll be at the end of September okay end of September September twenty okay. fourth we do uh, we started it in two thousand and eighteen we did it uh, Prairie Day. 2018 and 2019 and then of course COVID happened and we haven't done it since but we plan on doing that again this year and this is where um, we let individuals know around us the Texas Grazing Coalition anybody that's interested in nature it doesn't have to you don't have to have cattle you know maybe you are into wildlife or whatever but we get Texas Parks and Wildlife U.S. Fish uh, they come out um, uh, Texas Master Naturalists, the Master Gardeners, the Audubon Society. We get all these people together that are like-minded, that maybe not necessarily have cattle, but might be interested in prairie. And uh, we talk about what we're trying to do. We do some pasture walks with that. Um, You know, and what turns out for me um, that I like to bring up, and I'm going to emphasize that this year, is turns out what's good for nature is really good for cows. Mm. Yeah, you know, and I think you know that's so important because a lot of times when we have these different interest groups, uh, you mentioned Audubon Society or uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife. Um, I think there's a there's a lot more commonality between our goals than there is differences. Absolutely, you know? I am so lucky at my place. I have Texas Parks and Wildlife comes out on Wednesday now, yeah. and we trap white winged doves. Huh. You know, so, and and band them. Uh, so they cool. come out and do that. In fact, the NRCS and Parks and Wildlife are usually there together when we're collecting forage. Yeah. They want to see what it's all about. Yeah. They are now telling people that we need to incorporate cattle. They are another tool uh, for uh, restoring some of these lands that have been degraded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for for others looking to work with some of these agencies at that i mean you've you've got some strong relationships that you've developed but is there a how what advice would you have for others to proactively pursue those relationships well if you want to go the route that i did of course and everybody's going to do it a different way but both the nrcs and parks and wildlife have programs out there that will help you um with your with your land or whatever you want to do with it. Um, I would contact Texas Parks and Wildlife just for technical guidance. That goes by county. You contact your biologist. They'll come out, set up a date with you there, and walk over your land and tell you what you can possibly do with that. 
and maybe get into one of their programs. Um, also, the NRCS has some great programs also. I can't tell you how much they've helped me. i got to tell you another funny little story. Mm-hmm. The very first year that I had cows, I have a pond, and the dairy had three tanks out there, water tanks uh-huh. out there. Well, when you get further out, I had to roll this big water tank and drag about a quarter mile of hose and fill that up for the cows. And uh, my grazing specialist was out one day, and he said, Julie, I think we can help you with that. So they were able to cost share six, not five. I bought one extra. 550-gallon concrete water tanks that I have on the property now. It makes rotational grazing so easy. So there is a... um, another avenue that can help you and mentors i cannot do this without other mentors also yeah i think that that's important you know and i think too what one thing that i noticed in your story is that you you started with a vision Mm -hmm. and so you had a guiding vision to begin the discussions with folks yes you know i think a lot of times we you know, I know in, in my situation before, I've I've wanted to develop relationships with Parks and Wildlife or NRCS, but I didn't really know necessarily what that vision was. I kind of yeah. wanted them to help me with it, and and it's going to help them a lot more know how to help you whenever yeah. you can articulate that vision. Yeah. And so you had this passion of uh, of a love for the native prairie that you could go to them and say, "I want to make this. Yeah. This is what I love. Yeah. This is what I want to c- create." And then they said, "Okay." Julie, I can help you. Yep. You know, then. Uh, so I think that's important is to to be able to to understand and articulate what that is. You know, and that's I think a lot of that is where surrounding ourselves with other like minded people can start to articulate what that vision is, and getting on other people's land and being able to say, "This is what I'm trying to make. This is it." You know, because so much of it is like a, you know, an artist and a painting you you really can't describe it but when you see it it all makes sense yes and i wish i had had i of course i was able to work in those areas so i kind of envisioned envisioned what Mm -hmm. it was going to be like but i didn't know what would happen between the beginning and when i got there it's a lot more you have to have a lot of patience Mm -hmm. especially in my situation um but that is the number one is to be able to visualize it and that's one thing when we get people out in these workshops with you know uh, the the grazing coalition we go to different people's ranches see how they're doing it you can call these people up Mm -hmm. ask questions if you need help with your cattle they can come over and help you vaccinate or whatever it is about creating mentorships Mm -hmm. and every one of these um grazing workshops that we have with the coalition the nrcs is there Mm -hmm. and often parks and wildlife is there too now yeah so i think their whole vision is changing about uh, what we need to do for land stewardship and that's what all of us are trying to do we want to be land stewards good land stewards but how do we go about doing it and one thing that i don't like to hear and i'm not hearing that quite as much I don't like to hear it, but we've always done it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, just try to be open about maybe some other possibilities. That, But we can have nature, you know, and that's part of what's fun about the par- Parks and Wildlife Program I'm in. Part of it is the consensus mm-hmm. where you go out there and record what you're seeing. Mm. What, do you, what do you have yeah. out there? 
makes you a better student of the land and of nature and just just observing I oh think yeah that's and I I think I brought that up when we were talking yesterday one thing that I've learned that I uh, think that people need to learn and you will learn if you do some of this stuff is the art of mm. observation uh, and it is an art man that plays into a lot of different areas of life right there doesn't there it, it does. <laughs> yeah you're gonna be observant and you know you can't do that unless you get out there yeah yeah, just got to do it, make a practice out of it. Yeah, but. and a lot of people don't think too much of the prairie. I mean, you can drive down I-70 or whatever, and you see all that grass out there, and it doesn't look like much, but get out there and walk in it. Mm. That's when you'll understand what that, you know, that diverse ecosystem is all about. Yeah. I mean, the bison lived on it for millions of years. Yeah, so, all right, well, that's a... Oh, man, there's just a lot of lot of great takeaways there, and I think uh, that this is this is definitely a valuable conversation we've had, and I really appreciate you uh, coming and and joining me to to get this message out. I think it'll I think it it definitely inspires me, and I think it'll I think it'll add value to others as well. So one more time, um, uh, remind us of the date again that you're having your your field day. Is that yeah, Prairie okay? Day. We prairie call it Prairie Day. day. Okay. That'll be September 24th okay. of this year. Okay. And we'll probably do that from about 10 to 2. We'll have some more information out in about two weeks about that. Okay. Where can folks find more of that information if they want to try to make a trip out to attend that? Is it? Well, I should probably just give you my email address. Okay. And that is uh, sagegeodetic at msn.com. That's my old business. Okay. And uh, you can get a hold of me there. Okay, and we can put that in the show notes on this yeah. podcast and as even well. my phone so, number can add that on there. Okay, all right. Well, Ms. Maddox, I really appreciate your time. I think this was this has been a great discussion. So thanks for all you're doing for the prairie and uh, your work with Grazing Land Coalition. And uh, it's been quite the honor and privilege to to meet you and get to talk to you about all this. Well, today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs>